software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Devil's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at Test Double. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Welcome to Greater Than Code. This is episode 261. I'm Chelsea Troy, and I'm here with my co-host, May. And I'm here also with Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. We're all here today with Dave Bach. Welcome, Dave. Hi, glad to be here again. Glad to have you. David Bach is the Vice President of Strategic Development at CoreForce, Inc., where he is responsible for taking new strategic ideas within the company through development and into production. Dave speaks frequently on software engineering and management topics at software engineering conferences. Dave's true passion is his work as the executive director of Loudoun Codes, a nonprofit for teaching K-12 students in Loudoun County, Virginia, topics related to computer science. He has been volunteering in classrooms since 2013, working with parents and teachers on an official curriculum, extracurricular, and other supplemental activities. Welcome, Dave. We're so glad to have you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I love to talk about my passions. Speaking of your passions, we always start the episode with a certain question. I think you're ready for it. Uh, I'm never ready for this question. (laughs) What's your superpower and how did you acquire it? You know, it's funny. Listen to this podcast over the years. I have answered that question in the car a dozen times and every time it's a different answer. Sometimes I don't think there's a good answer for it. It's like, trying to settle on what I wanted to talk about this time. Cause it's like, I don't have any superpowers or just mundane powers applied. Well, but uh, I think my superpower, if I had to pick one, I would say it is my ability to quickly reevaluate and drop ideas that I no longer find value in. Like I don't get overly attached to an idea, you know, uh, I guess that's the best way I'd put it. And um, the first time I realized thinking about that was, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where uh, Captain Picard said to somebody that if you truly believe your convictions, you won't be afraid to reevaluate them. And uh, that's just something that I've always kind of applied. It came up again. My wife watches the TV show House, which is now you know long since off the air. But there, the the premise of that show was this doctor who was an expert in like rare pathological diseases. And he was a kind of a grumpy anti-hero doctor. And uh, every episode, there'd be some weird, rare disease, and he'd be the first one to identify it. And then some other symptom would present itself, and he'd abandon that idea and move on to a next one. And at one point, somebody said to him, you always think you're right. And he said, no, I always think I'm eventually right. Because if you see it, he's always willing to drop an idea and move on to the next one, even when other people were still wedded to the old idea. And uh, I, you know, I think I apply that 
you know, daily, but, you know, even in my career back in the 2006, seven timeframe, I was, you know, I was set. I could have kept as a, you know, Java developer for the rest of my career. And instead I abandoned it and started doing Ruby on Rails development. And I've since abandoned it again, did closure for a while, abandoned that again and got into management. I'm just, you know, didn't want to identify myself with any one track record too long. Love it. Was that how you ended up having that approach is from TNG or that? No, is I, like just, I just realized that I had that and that resonated with me. That line resonated with me and it stayed with me all these years. I can't say I even noticed it the first time that uh, I saw the episode. It was in a repeat one day that it just really struck me. When did you first realize you have this skill? Was it before that? I think it was uh, when it was made conscious to me was around the time I was career switching. You know, I, I had a resume in the Java space that sounded unbelievable. You know, I was a uh, president of the Northern Virginia Java user group. I was uh, on the Java 6 spec committee. I was one of 100 people that Sun had called a Java champion. And uh, just, I, I really had, I was speaking at a, a Java-themed software engineering conference, and I saw Ruby on Rails, and I was like, that is so cool. It's such a breath of fresh air. It's like every decision that a team normally argues over for the first several weeks is just made. You can just start moving out. And I you know, quit my job, started a consultancy doing Rails development, and kept with that for eight years. And uh, it was a blast. You know, meanwhile, I had friends in the Java community who were like, why are you doing that? That's a toy language. Oh, wow. <laughs> what did you say to them? Yeah. How do you retort? Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have a good one. It was just a, you know, it was a good career move, you know? Maybe you've been doing it so long, you, you don't have a way to explain it anymore. But how do you not get too emotionally attached to any single idea? Oh, man. You know, I think it might be just a a healthy amount of imposter syndrome, you know, where I question <laughs> myself a little bit. And uh, I know that it also presents itself in a way that, especially as I've gotten older, I notice that when I'm working with people and like a good idea will present itself, they'll immediately attach to that idea and start doubling down on it. And about the time other people are starting to write a blog entry on it, I'm wanting to lean in and like do research and figure out prior art, you know? <laughs> Have you experienced many downsides of this? Has this bit you before? I'm oh. all for this concept that you're talking about, but. That's a good question. Have I ever been too quick to abandon an idea that would have paid out? Probably. I also fall into that cliche of people that wonder if they have a never diagnosed ADHD because I have a million, you know, half started projects and it's like a milestone when I actually get to finish one. I wonder if that's related. I don't know. Is a pretty huge swath of uh, programmers. Yeah, true. You mentioned the thing about the Java folks calling Ruby a toy language, and I'm mm -hmm. curious about where you think it stands today and why and how you find Ruby really effective, especially for educational purposes. I guess I'm saddened to see so much news lately where people are talking about the death of Ruby or the death of Rails. Because I really think that the acceptance of Ruby in a first-class way was my eye-opening to the world being a polyglot environment. That it's even when I was a Java developer, I was a JavaScript developer, a CSS developer, an HTML developer, and Ruby was just another dot on that map for me. And 
you know, if I look at my career path, I, I started professionally programming in Pascal, did C, C++, Objective Pascal, switched to Java. So moving to Ruby was just another step on that long road for me. But it's the one that I keep going back to. You know, I've also done Clojure. I'm, I'm managing a project now that's in Python and JavaScript and React. And Ruby is at a sweet spot for me. When I want to solve a problem, it's the tool I bring out every time. Despite a half dozen languages, I could probably do that with. And I did mention that it was a, a sweet spot for me in terms of teaching. And I need to say that the curriculum that we formally teach in high school is based on Java. And that's because the AP exam is in Java. So the, the march is towards programming and, and passing the AP exam. But I think the curriculum is a little bit schizophrenic in trying to decide whether it's teaching computer science or whether it's a vocational skill for teaching programming. For me, teaching Ruby makes computer science much more approachable, mainly because I get to get syntax out of the way. The, the first few weeks in a Java programming course, my students struggle with, you know, where the semicolons go. Wait, what, why, do, why do I need to, to have, you know, begin and end brackets here? What is this public static void main thing about? Which is, that's especially frustrating because we never fully explain that even in two years of, of programming courses. And uh, Ruby just strips all that kind of complexity away. But then at the same time, it makes some aspects of teaching computer science much more approachable. The fact that I have all these cool things I can do with collections, like I can say each, I can, you know, select, I can reject, I can over a collection ask for every combination of five elements of that without it being a page and a half of recursive code to, <laughs> to get every possible combination. I, I teach concepts around, you know, algorithmic performance by talking about permutations and combinations that would be inaccessible that quickly in other languages, including Python. You know, Python is a close second, I think, and, and Python definitely has mindshare for teaching in that space. But Ruby is just in a slightly sweeter spot than that for me. You know, it's funny because you get five programmers in a room and start talking about, you know, high school computer science education, you get six answers as to what language we should be teaching. I can say that eight years in a classroom has challenged every assumption I've ever made about that. And there are situations where I've taught students 6502 and Z80 assembly language programming on retro computers. So, you know, I've been through the gamut of trying to teach students various things. There's an example where we even do a little bit of prologue to solve a uh, combinatorics puzzle. You know, when, when my students who have been programming in Java for a while see Ruby, they accuse me of cheating. Like, <laughs> no, you, you, you can actually program like this professionally. Love it. I used to teach too, and a lot of this resonates with me. I taught undergrad programming, and I chose Ruby too for a lot of the same reasons, because it's huh. approachable and the syntax gets out of the way. I just shared in the sidebar here a diagram that it's a dependency graph, and you need to know what a variable is before you can sort an array. You need to know arrays exist before you can sort them, and you need to know about objects before you can learn Rails, because it's based on objects. It's like, what do you need to know before you can know the next thing? And it's a huge huge spider web of stuff. But in other languages, if I had taught Java, for example, there's a whole nother mess web tangled of ball of yarn at the top, which is like the syntax getting in the way. So it, it, Ruby gets a lot of it, this, this whole like what you need to learn first, second, third, it's a lot cleaner in Ruby. Right. 
And, you know, I don't know that there's a perfect teaching language. And I think that's irrelevant that there isn't. I think, uh, you know, how many of us professionally program in the first language we ever learned? I think the real expertise, you know, as a software engineer comes when you know several different languages and can bring them to bear on different problems. So really, and I think that the computer science, the teaching community is starting to get this right, that they're starting to concentrate on computational thinking, not the syntax of computer programming. You know, if you look at the kind of the hierarchy of skills, there's things that we can teach elementary school kids about computational thinking, give them puzzles on how do you explain to your friend how to solve a maze, things like that. Then there's the notion of computer programming. You know, how do we get the curly braces in the right place? How do we take our ideas and translate them to the computer? And then above that, there's computer science concepts. And then using computer science concepts, but in a much different way, is software engineering. And I'll have students that ask me, well, what's the difference between the two? And computer science, I tell them, is you know ultimately about like the performance of algorithms and you know, you can get into f- almost philosophy of what is computable within the universe if you take computer science, you know, to the ultimate theoretical limit. And software engineering is about how do we use those various pieces to solve business problems? How do we work together as a team? And those are very different problems. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, you you can, you know, go to school for 20 years to get an advanced theoretical computer science degree, but it's possible to come out of a uh, 12-week boot camp and have skills that those people would never have. Well said. Chelsea also is a teacher, and I'm curious, Chelsea, if you have any thoughts in this realm. I do. So I teach a couple classes at the University of Chicago. One of them is Python programming. I teach Python and then intermediate Python. And I teach a mobile software development class. And it's funny that you mentioned that there's not one perfect programming language for teaching, because I found that to be true as well. I teach the Python programming class, for example, the point isn't specifically to learn the syntax of Python. The point is to learn principles of programming. And the language is chosen basically because it's a relatively low overhead language for a lot of the reasons that Casey mentioned before. But there are limitations that come with that too. So Python, I think one of the strengths of Python, for example, is that The core Python team makes explicit what I think a lot of other programming language core teams leave implicit in such a way that it is apparent for new learners to understand, which is that any tool, any programming language, anything that we write or read or use in computer science was written with a perspective in mind because it was written by a person or a group of people. And the Python core team makes that perspective explicit in a number of ways. And that perspective leans towards object-oriented programming, which works for a lot of our use cases. But if we are attempting to teach principles of programming, it also makes sense for us to include functional programming and functional paradigms and functional programming thinking. And I end up needing to use a couple of workarounds to get to that in Python. We end up writing decorators. A decorator is a sort of meta function in Python that you can pass other functions into and it can wrap those functions in the same way that you would decorate a class in something like Ruby. And it's not the kind of thing that you would write as an end user application developer. Most folks using Python 
don't write decorators. I'd hazard the guess, in fact, that most people who write Python don't know what a decorator is, really. So students start a little bit confused about the decorator syntax. And even Python core maintainers have asked me, why do you teach decorators in an introduction to programming like Python cores? And the reason isn't that students are going to need to use decorators professionally. It's that decorators are one of the only access points in Python for teaching functional concepts. We run into, uh, we handle the problem a little bit differently, or I handle it a little bit differently in mobile software development. So that course, similar to the Python programming course, is a platform-specific way to sneak in general programming concepts. And I happen to think that mobile is a really great avenue for teaching a lot of things in computer science because before you're on a really small device, a lot of the algorithmic optimizations and data optimizations that we talk to students about being so primarily important are just not functionally relevant on a machine of the power that these students have. At this point, a laptop is so powerful that telling them that they need to optimize this loop in order to make something run faster, they're not going to be able to notice a difference on their machine. But when we're talking about something like a mobile device where there is a very real, very tangible limit on the amount of data that your application can take up, those things start to feel tangible to students in a way that makes them relevant and memorable. And we end up using a couple different programming languages in that course. We use Swift, we use a tiny bit of Objective-C, and we use Kotlin. I love that idea that you can motivate programming a really efficient algorithm by putting it onto a mobile device. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in a class, I would bring that up as the example, like, well, sometimes you'll need to make it very efficient, like a mobile, but we never taught, in, in my experience, I never taught like mobile app development, but that's so motivated. It matters there. It helps. I find that mobile is a great avenue for teaching a lot of different things in computer science that we end up not talking a lot about. Sourcing ethics for mobile devices, for example, is a very tangible way for students to understand some of the engineering ethics concerns that we have. And mobile allows us to talk about accessibility in ways that are tangible for students because the truth is that the vast majority of the design innovations that made mobile devices so important when they came out came from accessibility companies and accessibility ideas and accessibility products. So if uh, folks have heard me talk about mobile development before, then they've heard me say this, but the multi-touch capacitive screen that made the iPhone so important that made it break the market for phones that existed where we were using T9 and keypads, that innovation And its precursors came from this company called Fingerworks that Apple acquired. And the goal of that company was to enable human computer interaction for people who had lost their fine motor skills. And there are a lot of things in mobile development that are like that, where the fact that everyone at this point who's got a mobile phone considers it so indispensable to their life is a testament to the way that building something in an accessible fashion makes it more useful to everyone, not just the community that quote unquote needs the accessibility. Yes. Thank you for plugging accessibility as accessible for all. You mentioned being able to teach them performance and you're right. That is a challenging problem on modern machines. I just shared in the, uh, 
chat two different links to puzzles that I use in the classroom. One is this uh, star 26 puzzle, which is the numbers 1 through 12 on little pegs. And you have to arrange them in rows of four numbers, kind of like the Star of David, mm-hmm. and have it so each row adds up to 26. And there are several hundred solutions to that problem. And uh, I walk through my students solving that puzzle. And the way we can write a program to find every solution to that is just try every... I was talking before about combinations and permutations. We can literally try every possible permutation of the numbers 1 through 12, and we just have a function to see if that's a solution. Mm -hmm. And a Ruby program, Ruby's not the fastest language, and it can chug through that in about two minutes on my laptop. Mm -hmm. The second puzzle I shared is called Aristotle's number puzzle. And that has the numbers one through 19 that have to be ranged in like a hexagonal, almost like a honeycomb pattern so that every row and column has to add up to 39. And if you look at the size of the permutation of the number one through 19, and you know, I'll show that puzzle to the students and they'll be like, oh yeah, we can write a program to solve that. Now that they've written the first one, they write the program and not considering the size of the set of the number of permutations of one through 19. And they sit there and they wait for it to start to spit out answers and wait and wait. And a few minutes go by and nothing happens. And then I ask them, well, how much bigger is that space? So we talk about finding all the spaces and we realize that if we could solve permutations of one through 12 in about two minutes, the permutations of one through 19 will take over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. So we're like, how can we get that down? And we have to have a completely different approach to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. That is motivated. You make them feel the pain of waiting even. Right, more. right. It's probably, it's time bound, right? You right. Do them a- right. <laughs> how long do the final programs end up taking? So you use a little bit of linear algebra and believe it or not, I can use this to like, in, they can intuit the concepts of linear algebra from this puzzle. It's, I'd have to talk you through it, but I can find the solution to that first puzzle in under 30 seconds, and then using the same approach on the uh, first star 26 puzzle, we can bring that solution to find all the possible answers in under six seconds. Wow. So we, we go from like blindly testing every possible permutation to a depth first search where we quickly eliminate entire branches of the problem because we know that they don't solve the uh, a simpler version of the constraint. And I have a bunch of different puzzles that kind of fit that pattern of the first one, the obvious brute force solution solves it in a couple minutes. The next one like would take a thousand years. So we have to figure out a smarter way to solve it. I think that's really cool that you give them the opportunity to see, to feel the waiting process Right. I think that those sorts of experiences end up allowing lessons like these to stick in a way that just explaining that this thing is going to take a long time sometimes. Right. right. You know, I, I should also, I, I'm talking a lot about my time in the classroom here. I need to give credit to the teacher that I work with. You know, I'm not going to say his name because uh, he, I didn't get permission to mention him beforehand, but I work with a math teacher at the, the high school where I work where eight years ago, he opened his classroom to me and uh, just, you know, we we lecture together. Uh, most of the time, I would just wander around and help students with lab time. But there are several topics that he just lets me, you know, stand in front of the class and give them ideas and, you know, give them extracurricular projects. And, you know, it's it's just fantastic that he opened his classroom to me like that. I volunteer in his classroom two mornings a week. And that has led to 
things that I do at local elementary schools, local middle schools. And then last year during the pandemic, when uh, a lot of teachers were looking for other ways to engage their students, I started to engage a lot more, you know, remotely. And that finally got me some visibility at the county level, where there's a a director of computer science education and a few uh, education facilitators that I'm working with now as well. Very cool. How did teaching remotely compare for you to teaching in person? Oh, my God, it was so hard. You know, in addition to to this, you know, I got into this whole thing because I have three boys that are triplets, and they're finally at the high school where I'm teaching. Uh, But when they were in kindergarten, I started to volunteer through a program called Watchdog Dads at their local elementary school. So that's how I got into this whole thing. So I taught, you know, in the classroom for years before COVID. And I saw it, first of all, with my own kids in that there were classes that they did fine at, you know, especially with me being able to tutor them in some math stuff that worked well. But it was also the first year that all three of them were taking Spanish. And that was just a really hard remote thing to try to take a foreign language remotely. You know, because you sit there, you watch the teacher and she's like, okay, I want everybody in the class to say hola, but I want you to all be muted because I can't hear you all at the same time. Okay, say hola. Okay, now, now, Daniel, you unmute and say hola. Daniel, Daniel, the, the button. Yeah, honey, the, the button to unmute. There you go. And it took like an entire class to get every student to say hola. Like it was not going to go well that year. And um, in the computer science class, most of the time it was okay because it was lab time. You know, once they got a concept, they're just sitting and thinking in front of a computer. And in some ways it was even easier because they can share their screen with me and stuff like that. But uh, there's one topic that I love to teach. It's like, you know, I love to teach recursion to the high schoolers because the high school age, you teach them recursion. And when they get it, it's like I taught them one of the secrets of the universe. And Normally in the classroom, I see their faces light up and their eyes where like, I've made the connection. They've, they've understood it. At least they understand it in a minute. You know, I'm sure you've all been there where you understand something and then tomorrow it's like a dim memory and you have to grasp for it again, but they understood it in the moment. And remotely, I could not make that decision or make that connection. I uh, walked out of my office and went in to see my wife in her office uh, across the house And I was just like dejected. I was like, that was the worst teaching experience I ever had because I covered the material, but I had no connection with anybody. I could have just been doing it to a blank screen. And uh, my county did not force students to have their cameras on, which is probably a good thing. But at the same time, very few students had their cameras on. So there were very few faces to make that connection to as you're talking. So oftentimes I was just, you know, speaking to a blank screen and a microphone. I, you know, it could have been singing in the shower for all I knew, you know, there was no connection. Wow. Yeah. It's unnerving. I've, I've been teaching online this year too. And when everyone's camera's off, it is unnerving. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm literally talking to myself. Often I'll ask people to turn the video camera on. And when I ask people to even give me visual feedback, even one person can completely transform my experience. Oh, right. Well, just one person. But yeah. I, I don't know that I'd do that with kids. I feel like you're stuck where you're at. Right. Oh, especially, you know, there's not that any of that's happened in my county, but there are situations where, you know, students have been disciplined for posters they have up in their bedroom and stuff like that, because it was now a school event. So I understand why as a high school student, I wouldn't want the school intruding into my personal space like that. One good thing to come out of the the remoteness of the pandemic, in Loudoun, we went to virtual very suddenly towards the end of the year before last. 
So the last few months of school was all remote and we weren't expecting to do that. It was one day, okay, we're going out on break. And then all of a sudden, no, you're not going back. So students picked their classes for the next school year remotely. And our percentage of women in the class went up. And there's no real, like, I haven't heard anybody doing studies on that. At the Computer Science Teachers Association, there was anecdotal evidence that that was true across counties everywhere. And the general thinking is that students pick their classes without that peer pressure of people being like, ooh, you're going to take that. So, you know, the percentage of women taking computer science classes at high school went up. And, you know, that's always been a mystery to me because we do events at the elementary school level. And boys and girls are equally good and equally interested at like up until fifth grade, which is the end of elementary school. Then I see students again in the middle school when I do events in seventh grade, and we already have that 70-30 split. It's like, where are all those girls that a couple years ago, like really love this stuff? You know, they're just all kinds of weird peer pressure, and there's no one cause that I can contribute to it. But then by the high school, we're, you know, on bad years, we're, you know, down to 20% women in a class. This year, we're up to 33, which is, you know, better than normal, but we can still do a lot better. I wonder whether some of it would have also had to do with somebody's experience in the class. So if you're taking a class remotely, you're not in this class surrounded by potentially people you don't know, people that you're not spending a lot of time with, people that you're not friends with. That's the kind of thing that I think would really influence the way that a middle schooler would select classes. Remember being at that age and wanting to be in the classes that my friends were in. Right. Yeah. In fact, you know, uh, of students that I've talked to, there's a little bit of perception there that that's the geeky subject. I don't want to take that. Or girls are more academically interested earlier than boys are. So they want to start language classes a year earlier because that's a requirement. And statistics kind of bear that out. You know, this is an optional extracurricular class. And so there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, You know, there's no one root cause that, you know, I can point to and say, that's the thing we need to fix. Well, with the academic orientation, it it's funny that you brought that up because when you described that about the online trend, I was like, well, I mean, people are, it's pretty clear that having these skills will position you better. And that is something that girls tend to be pretty attuned to. I mean, if we're talking in terms of a gender binary and if we're talking in terms of total like platitudes about gender or I had some peers in undergrad who were really gatekeeping me as a developer. I had done some community college classes in high school. I was a total nerd. My parents supported me in doing it. It was great. I knew programming. But in freshman year, people said, are you a programmer? Here, I know how to tell if you're a programmer. What's recursion? And I don't, like somehow I was like, I, I got it already. I knew recursion right. years ago. But right. I was like, I don't know how to answer this question. So I clearly wasn't a programmer. Until I could prove I knew recursion to this undergrad boy that was trying to get, keep me out of it. And I, any amount of pressure like that, even if it's more subtle t- to the women, I imagine is even stronger. Yeah, the, the gatekeeping thing is weird. The first year I was teaching, I saw a boy in one of the classes say to a girl that, oh, I think it's cute that a girl is learning how to code. And she beamed like it was a compliment. And I realized this is going to be tougher to figure out than I originally thought, because this mixes up in the high school dynamic of who has a crush on who and who wants a compliment from whom. And it just, at the time it happened, I sat there and just didn't know how to respond to it. And since then, whenever I've seen something like that happen again, I actually have a little bit prepared 
where I'm like, well, actually, you know, the first computer programmers were women. And I have a whole little keynote presentation ready to go that has, you yes. know, pictures of women in front of ENIAC switching the wires around and, you know, Grace Hopper there in her admiral's uniform and a whole little thing to talk about, about how this was originally seen as, you know, programming was kind of that secretarial pool, you know, the original word world of computers, but when computers were people and, uh, you know, the computers were just like a, a step above the secretarial typist pool and that as people figured out, oh, actually, you know, this is kind of interesting. It kind of like guys dominated and how they kind of attribute that in the eighties, as video games became popular and first person shooters ruled the world, that computers became the toy that was in the boy's bedroom, not the girl's bedroom. And that's where a lot of our gender bias today can come from. And so I try to make them aware of that. You know, it's funny. I originally took the opportunity to volunteer in high school as a completely selfish reason to see what high school peer pressure was going to be like for my own kids these days. Cause you know, I grew up when breakfast club was reality. My (laughs) high school was, you know, click upon click. And it's almost encouraging that that doesn't seem to exist as much today. Uh, There's a, I think a lot more acceptance than I see in the high school. That's interesting to hear. You know, I wouldn't have, my experience of high school was very similar to your experience of high school. And not only was it my experience, but it's also what I have seen reflected in, I'm not particularly partial to movies or television that focus on high schoolers, but any movies or television that I have seen that is focused on the high school age or even the middle school age, that has essentially been the expectation for what it is like for students to be in school. Now, I have to admit, the students that I'm largely exposed to are a special group in that, you know, our first year computer science, the intro class is a completely voluntary thing. It's not a requirement. And then the AP class is a volunteer thing again, an extra, or not an extracurricular, but a uh, elective. Yeah. So, you know, that they're opting in twice. If they get involved in anything I'm doing extracurricularly, like with the competitions or the events that I hold at my local library, they're opting in a third time. So those students are a rare group, and they seem to be much more accepting of each other. I can't say that that's true in your typical English class, for instance. But I do have, you know, geeks, jocks, nerds, everybody all in one room, and they get along. While we're on the topic of computer science education... Upcoming is the Computer Science Education Week, Dave, and I understand you have a bit to tell us about that. Yeah, this is how I actually got involved in this whole thing. Uh, I mentioned that I was volunteering at my son's elementary school. And the first year, you know, I was just this overly enthusiastic parent who was kind of disappointed that they had a computer lab, but they only seemed to teach 20th century office worker skills. And I volunteered to try to teach something. And well, we can't install stuff on the computers. We don't have any curriculum. Well, the next year was the first annual computer science education week. And there was this curriculum called the hour of code. And the goal was to get every student in the country to have one hour of computer programming experience. And uh, I mentioned that to the technology resource teacher, and she helped me uh, get the principal involved in it. And we ran the computer science education week through all with all the third, fourth and fifth graders at the elementary school. And then that got me involved at volunteering at the high school level. And since then, we have been having our high school students every year 
go back to elementary schools and help teach the computer science education week. So we have high schoolers going back to the elementary schools that they went to, you know, helping their old teachers teach computer science. Oh, I love that. It's amazing how much they accomplish in an hour. If you go take a look at like code.org or cseducationweek.org or even hourofcode.org, there are lessons that, that take about an hour and need nothing more than a browser. And my favorite is the one from the first year that just uses the game characters from Angry Birds and Plants vs. Zombies, and you have to write a computer program that tells like a zombie how to get through the maze to a flower. So it starts out, you know, you have to tell the, the zombie to move forward, and then move forward and turn right, and then move forward, and if the path in front of you is blocked, turn left. Oh, but if the path in f- to your left is blocked, turn right. And there's this whole uh, steps you through the algorithm to solve a maze. And at the end of the class, you tell the students, that just doesn't solve that maze. That can solve any maze, and it blows their mind. And uh, schools are always looking for volunteers to help teach that stuff. So consider this a call to action for the audience. Reach out to a local elementary school, a local middle school, even a local high school. Find the math teacher or whatever teacher that's teaching some coding aspects. Find out if they're doing an hour of code event and volunteer to help. Because it is almost a stereotype that elementary school teachers walk into the classroom and like, oh, don't ask me to program. I don't know anything about programming. I can't even figure out how to use the printer. And, uh, you know, that's not a great mindset to be teaching our elementary school kids, you know, because they they eat this material up. They think it's fun. They, you know, let's let's get them encouraged with it. So I've been using other students to do that for years, and it's to great success. You know, I now have students that are arriving at the high school looking forward to this event because they remember it from when they were elementary school students. That's cool. Yeah, I love that. I've done an hour of code before. We we did a scratch thing, but it was Star Wars themed. Yeah, I remember and that I one. Wore, I wore my hair in buns. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah, the, the great thing is over the years, they've built out more and more curriculum. The problem with the first year is that advanced, you know, like fifth and sixth graders, especially by the time they'd done it a couple of years, they were bored with it. Like we've done this before. Oh, I have a great story about that. I'll get to in a second. But then like the first and second graders would come and number one, sometimes they had trouble reading it. Number two, it's only at like the end of the second grade year that they have the concept of, you know, they're looking top down on this screen, but they can't see it from the, like the zombie's eyes where the zombie has to move forward and then turn left and then move forward. Uh, so the Star Wars curriculum has BB-8 that can move up, down, left, or right. So they take away the having to see it through the zombie's eyes. Right. Yep. And then at the kindergarten and first grade level, they have it with just up, down, left, and right arrows. So you drag the arrows out. So now they don't even have to read. Um, but then at like the fifth grade level, they have one based on Frozen where they you're ice skating and you can do angles like 45 degrees, 30 oh. degrees, 90 degrees. So there's a lot more motion available in that and almost spirograph life like effects. So there's, there's something for everybody there. It's, it's just fantastic. It's, uh, you know, stuff that's geared towards educational level, stuff that's geared towards, you know, gender, just all kinds of material there. You could almost get a computer science education for free off of, you know, code.org. So I mentioned that, uh, I have two great stories about 
teaching fifth graders. The first year we did the hour of code, when they complete the lesson, they can hit, you know, show code and it shows them the JavaScript code that would do what they just did in terms of move forward, turn left, all that stuff. Well, I showed them the code I had written for a game that played Connect 4. So we played Connect 4, I let the computer beat the whole class, and then I showed them the code. And I was like, look, there's a lot more of it, but it's the same stuff you were just writing. And we burrowed down into one little part, and I showed them how like six lines of code work. And I said, all the computer's doing is it looks, there's only seven possible moves in Connect 4. So it looks at all possible seven moves and imagines what if it happened. Well, after that move, there's seven possible moves. So you know, there's only 49 possible moves at that level. After that, there's only, you know, so many other moves. And we keep, and I said, so the computer just looks seven moves ahead and sees who wins and loses and decides I'm going to go that way down this whole tree. And this fifth grade girl said, oh, so computers aren't smart. They're just dumb really, really fast. Oh my gosh. I love that. And that, that quote, I, I use that quote all the time. And then Um, I had another student who came in a few years later and she was like, I'm getting tired of this. I don't want to drag the buttons. I want to type the code like the big kids do. So with one of the high school students in another one of the hour of code lessons, she was typing out JavaScript. And, you know, when she had to do move forward, move forward, move forward, she was like, there should be an easier way to do this. So she just tried writing move forward. And in the empty parentheses, she put the number three and it worked. And she was like, awesome. So, you know, and uh, it's just great to see students like that, you know, that you're encouraging them to, you know, push the boundaries without fear. Well, and kudos to uh, to the developer who wrote the API that had moved forward where you could put three in it. Right, right. Experience right. doing any like, honestly, AWS integration, anything. If it were <laughs> intuitive, I would cry with joy. <laughs> So at the level that I, I teach master's students, and at that point, I don't have as many fun things for them to program, but I make them program things like uh, they write a testing framework, they modify a testing framework that I've written, um, and then they do a similar thing for a data analysis framework similar to Pandas if you use Python or something like that. But the goal is very much what you're describing earlier with showing folks the Connect4 code in so far as that I want them to understand that the libraries that they're using on a day-to-day basis aren't magic. There's not something happening in there that the fundamental concepts would be unfamiliar to them if they were to hear about it. It's effectively maybe more complex and maybe more like fiddly versions of things that they are writing. And at some level, there's sort of this Pareto principle thing going on where you can get 80% of the functionality of a lot of APIs with 20% of the code, provided you're willing to make some assumptions like people know how to use it and they're not going to put in the wrong thing and that kind of thing. Right. When you're introducing, like trying to make helpful error messages, that's like way more code in most of these things than the happy path implementation is. So it's cool to see them implement those things and start to realize that a lot of the code that they use on a day-to-day basis, at least from the happy path perspective, is not different from what they write themselves. Right. So you mentioned that you teach first and second graders, fifth graders, seventh graders. Did I get that right? I've had done some stuff at the middle school. And and let me tell you, the middle school, my favorite thing to do there is to walk in as a guest lecturer with a teacher, uh, several teachers that I know. Because when you walk in for the class and like, 
I tend to bring in wooden puzzles or, or little encryption toys and stuff like that. And I bring them in in this little suitcase that looks like the suitcase that that guy in the, the Harry Potter movies that the animal pops out of. And you walk into a classroom with something that looks like that and you have everybody's attention. Like the students are silent waiting for you to open that thing and see what's in it. And teachers are always like, I, I can't believe how, how like attentive they were for you. But I can say that several years ago, pre-COVID, I ran a after-school robotics club for a middle school, and where once a week we would, you know, spend an hour and a half building out this robotics, this robot with the Vex Robotics team stuff, and and that was a little hard, um, having to work with the same group of kids regularly on an after-school extracurricular thing because. There were several students who were there because they knew they loved robotics. And you see them then a few years later at the high school doing stuff with the robotics club. There were kids that were there because their mom can't pick them up till 4.30 and you're going to do something after school. That looks educational. You're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to be there. And the other coach and I are not formal teachers in the school, in the county. You know, so we're there as volunteer coaches, right? So these students, you know, I don't know if they instinctually know that or what. But there are disruptive students, you know, that, that like seventh grade age where they're like, you know, that just, it's like, uh, so I've gotten to this point where like, if it's any long committal thing like that, you know, I have fun with them until fifth grade. And then I'm like, you know, I'll see y'all in high school. You'll go have, I have some stuff to work out. <laughs> um, but I do like to like volunteer, uh, you know, as a guest teacher in the classroom, you know, maybe four times a year with teachers that I know. That way, you know, you have a good rapport with the students. They remember you from elementary school. They're going to be happy to see you when they get to high school. Anyway, that's what my experience at the middle school levels become. Very cool. If someone listening wants to guest lecture at a school, what could that look like for them? If they call the front desk at the elementary school, who are they going to talk to? And then and then who? And how do they meet them? How so do you meet them? Even I have the best results like reaching out to the teacher that I know is teaching the curriculum. And if you go to your school's website, there is probably going to be a uh, you know list of all the faculty at the school and the subjects they teach. And computer science topics are generally under the math curriculum. If you can't find exactly who's teaching it, talk to the department head, and they'll put you in touch with who's teaching it. Because that, stu- that teacher is going to be the one that can say, I-, I have exactly the thing I can use you for. The further I go up that chain the harder it is as an entry point. But if you start grassroots, you can move up that chain. So like, you know, the whole reason I'm at the high school is that the first year I did this at the elementary school level, we got some local press for it. And the elementary school principal was like, this is fantastic. And then that high school principal was like, I want to know more about that. And so that's how that happened. But I always have the best success just reaching out to a teacher and saying, hey, you know, I have some stuff prepared. I'd love to volunteer as a, you know, as a guest in your classroom. And it's even branched out from math teachers. I have a curriculum on computers in World War II that I did at the middle school level when they were learning about World War II. And my sons, who are now in ninth grade, I've talked to one of their world history teachers about talking about the development of math from a historical perspective. Like, I don't know if you've read the book Zero Biography of a Dangerous Idea. No. Um, but that, oh, fantastic book. It's called Zero, The Biography of a Dangerous Idea. And it's about the history of where the number zero comes from. I have because, heard some of this, but I wasn't familiar with the book. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, zero is kind of a contentious topic. Yep. Because, you know, 
counting is a natural thing when I'm counting my sheep in my farm, right? I have five sheep. I have six sheep. Oh, I'm giving you two sheep. You can almost even end up with negative numbers making sense because I gave you three sheep kind of thing. So you can, you know, it's kind of weird that I have negative three sheep, but you owe me three sheep. Somebody can understand, but I have zero sheep. Well, you know, I also have zero pigs. Why does that matter? So it was like a huge philosophical debate. Is zero a number we need to consider in math? And when um, zero was introduced to cultures that use like a, uh, something like a Roman numeral based counting system, it didn't make much sense. You know, you think about counting in Roman numerals, you have the number five, what do you do to make six? You put a one in front of it or a, a one after it, right? You put a one before it to make four. Well, so if I have the number five and I put a zero in front of it, zero means nothing, but you're now you're telling me it's 10 times as much as 50. What? But I put a zero in front of it, right? So it just, it didn't make a lot of sense to people where that was their mindset. And uh, it was a big cultural shift. And that book goes into that. I must have talked to someone about this book because it was sheep examples. And it was something also about that before numbers, people would take rocks. And like when the sheep went out, they would put a rock for each one. And when the sheep came back in, they would then move that pile of rocks. And so even anyway, sheep counting (laughs) is uh, a lot of base math. Right, right. So and I have two great examples that I'm dying to use in a uh, with this world history teacher who's currently on like subjects of Mesopotamia and stuff. There is an artifact that is it's it's in this collection and it's labeled as Plimpton 322. And this is a clay tablet that has numbers in I can't remember the counting system, but it's based on a stick pressed into the tablet and the orientation of the stick represents what the number is. And after decoding this tablet, they realize that it contains a bunch of Pythagorean triples, which, you know, if you remember the Pythagorean theorem, like three, four, and five are a Pythagorean triple. So it's basically any three integers that can be the sides of a triangle. And this tablet contains a bunch of Pythagorean triplets, 1500 years before Pythagoras was around. And this is in Mesopotamia. It's like where where did where did that knowledge come from? That's just amazing that such a thing exists. So I, I have a bunch of references like that I'm using with uh, this curriculum I'm working up to present to a world history class. Love it. That seems like a great opportunity to drive home the idea that a lot of the things that we attribute to a singular person having invented or discovered it, it probably wasn't necessarily that way. Even in the cases where we attribute one person, it was often a collaborative effort. And even in the cases where we're attributing that one collaborative effort, a lot of ideas sort of materialize in several different places around the same time period. I know. It's so cool. You know, you think uh, Newton and Leibniz both came up with calculus at the same time, apparently pretty independently, but it's because the world was ready for such a thing to exist. You know, we had all the foundational knowledge in place. I was just in Cancun last week for a wedding, which was really nice. And then we went on a trip and the Mayans apparently had zero and they represented it with an empty shell. <laughs> I don't know. This is a theme for me lately. Zero. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It sounds like it would be a dry, boring book, but zero, the biography of a dangerous idea is definitely worth the read. I mean, and now we're back to the point in programming where people don't want to have Nolan programs. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
there might be something to this. Do we really need zero idea? Well, then there's the whole, uh, you know, debate around imaginary numbers. That's a whole interesting branch of uh, mathematics as well. This reminds me of a line I almost said earlier, where when you're learning programming, you go from caring about programming for the computer's sake, like algorithmic efficiency. Mm -hmm. And then on the next level of complexity is programming for people who are way more right. complex. The developers developing after you, maybe you, and the right. people you're developing for. And they're differently complex, but practitely in all of the jobs I've worked in, the algorithmic complexity is not the most complex Definitely. one that takes the most time. That's the hardest for the right. problem space we're in. That's one of the things that I tell students about when, you know, when they're learning Java and they ask me about other programming languages, like, well, why do other programming languages exist? And I say, well, it's not so much for the computer because the computer will run any old thing we tell it to. The different languages exist because it's how humans use to express thoughts. And right. often where it's documentation for other humans. People want to express their perspective. And if their perspective differs from a programming language they see out there, they write their own. Right. <laughs> I explain programming to non-programmers often as, or in describing coming into the industry, I thought it was going to be way more math-like. And really, I found it to be creative writing. And a lot of people think that other people's code is bad because it's not how their brain works or how they would have arranged it. Mm -hmm. And so it is this thing about, is your brain most like the other brains or are you able to predict what the other brains will want you to have said? <laughs> right. Right. And we end up spending a lot of time reformatting code over things like that. Yep. So I give this workshop, it's about technical debt and what technical debt actually is and what that term means. Because folks, everyone sort of knows what technical debt feels like, but then the way that we end up conceptualizing it is a little bit different to that. And one of the things that happens a lot of times, if you give people like a free week to refactor and reduce tech debt in the code base, what you get is a fair number of code renovations where what happened was somebody didn't like the way somebody else wrote it, so they wrote it their way. And right now it does the same thing. And right now the maintenance load is the same as it was before. Best case scenario, it's the same as it was before. Worst case scenario, you erased a bunch of context the team had about the way it worked. And the fundamental difference is a preferential one rather than a functional one, rather than a documentation one or a context one. And it is shockingly easy to fall victim to that. It is extremely easy to feel like you are reducing the maintenance load in the code base when you're not because your mm -hmm. personal perspective aligns better with the way you're trying to write it than the way the code is aligned at that time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I have students that, you know, in the first few weeks of programming get really frustrated, you know, learning to program, learning, you know, their syntax is wrong, their, their semicolons are in the wrong place, and they blame themselves. And I'm like, don't, you know, this isn't you. The computer is the stupid one in this relationship. You know, you're, you're, you have to be smart for both of you. And it's kind of like writing poetry for an obsessive compulsive English teacher who is expecting where, you know, every semicolon has to be in the right place. <laughs> oh, and to go back a moment, though, I do want to put in a plug because Chelsea recently gave that workshop at RubyConf. And when that comes out and is available, definitely check it out. Excellent. Oh, yeah, I did. the record. If you have a RubyConf ticket, by the way, that recording is available as of today. Oh. But, uh, yeah, it'll be on YouTube at some point, too. But, uh, yeah, I had a teacher who expressed a very similar 
thing that you did, Dave, in so far as that if we were having trouble getting something, he was very, very quick. And he said that he did this in his programming job as well. He would, he would blame the UI typically. And I find myself doing that a lot, in particular when it comes to ops type stuff. If I'm like messing with ops, I'm like, it's not my fault that I don't understand why this drop down only has one item in it and stuff like that. It's funny that you, and I, I'll, I'll bring this back as well that you mentioned earlier, elementary school teachers talking about how like, well, I can't be expected to know anything about code. I can barely operate the printer. When you said that, I thought to myself, I mean, I'm a professional software engineer and there are days that I can't operate that printer. Yeah, that's, that's a hardware problem. I'm a software <laughs> Like I'm a mechanic. That don't mean I'm a good driver. And it certainly doesn't mean that I can read the mind of a designer who I never met who released something 20 years ago right. that now sits in a break room somewhere. I think it's very different skill sets. And that designer probably didn't think it was great either. They had constraints. Right. Totally. <laughs> But there are people who will defend the design. Maybe they don't see the fuller picture here. They didn't take Dave Buck's lesson of how to not get too attached to an idea. Ah, love it. Actually, I did need to ask you that uh, about that, day because you mentioned you teach a number of different age groups. You do a number of different guest lectures. You go and you volunteer at the local library. And um, I imagine that for a lot of our listeners... Uh, would love to be able to give back to their communities in addition to their full-time job. But, you know, like you, they got kids, they got things going on, and there's logistical challenges associated with that. I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how you manage maybe your time, but in my experience, the limiting ingredient is really more energy than it is time. So I'm curious to, as to how you approach that. Wow. You know, I, it's not like I have more time in my day than anybody else. I just. Uh, you Especially know, with triplets. Right. It's, it's just how I manage it. If anything, because the triplets, I'm used to having to have a higher energy level. First of all, like for years, I didn't watch television at all. Not a single thing on TV at all. Like I, I missed probably a decade of cultural awareness and movies and everything. First of all, because I had kids, but also because I was uh, volunteering in the classroom and that kind of stuff. But I have to say that the curriculum that I'm building with my students, that effort pays back every year. Every year, I'm like, oh, you know what? That's a neat little puzzle. I tend to do stuff with a lot of little wooden puzzles. And I'll be like, oh, that's a neat puzzle. I'm going to add that to the curriculum. And Oh, that's just like that puzzle. So I mentioned earlier the 26 puzzle and the Aristotle's number puzzle. Those are two puzzles I saw at completely different times. But I'm like, similar gimmick, different scales. By the same token, if you've ever seen the... Uh, Cracker barrel triangle peg jumping thing. Oh, yeah. Peg solitaire. Well, that also exists in what they call English solitaire, which is marbles on a board. And there's about 33 marbles doing the same thing in like a cross arrangement. So, again, similar jumping mechanic, completely different size space problem. So, I've, I keep finding puzzles like that in pairs. I found a bunch of board games that are like this, and each one illustrates some concept along computational thinking. And every year I have a fresh crop of new students. So every time I add a puzzle to it, it just keeps, you know, glomming onto the complete set of curriculum I've developed. So it's not like I've spent tons of time developing this curriculum. I've spent a little bit of time over eight years building it out. And it's evergreen because there are always more students to learn. Uh, so how do I manage my time? I, I could not tell you that I have any secret sauce. Uh, I can tell you that 
prior to COVID, since about 2007, I have been working remotely on and off. And not having a commute really gave me time back in my day to do stuff. The job I have now, they treasure the time that I spend in the classroom. In fact, my last several jobs have really supported me in this, in the fact that, you know, I work from home, I'm five minutes from my high school, I can schedule a class on my calendar, and it's just like a meeting. I can disappear for an hour and come back, and it's it's just like, you know, I had a meeting in the middle of my day with anybody. So it really gives me that flexibility to uh, volunteer at the school. Um, the fact that, in fact, for a year and a half, I had, you know, an hour and a half commute on a good day. And for that year and a half, I was not in the school nearly as much because, you know, I couldn't get to it. Uh, so I think being able to, you know, work remotely is a, a big draw of my time. Not spending time parked in front of the TV, you know, which admittedly has changed. I found a few guilty pleasures in television shows lately. Ooh, what are you watching? Yes. Oh my God. I am, I am late to Ted Lasso. I haven't seen it yet. I have not seen. Oh, oh God. I got to tell you, I'm not going to spoil anything because I want everybody to watch the show. Uh, a friend of mine was raving about this show in terms of its postmodernism. And he's like off on a tangent describing that he predicted a show of this kind of non-ironic sentimentality and, you know, virtue ethics years ago because of the way the society was going. When I first heard about this show, I was like, let me get this straight. A show about an overly like positive, righteous, you know, self-righteous character that is a soccer coach. Okay. I'm not a sports guy, so I don't care about soccer. And everything I've seen and heard about this guy, it sounds like it's Ned Flanders from the Simpsons. Why am I going to watch a show where Ned Flanders is the main character of that show? So I was like dead set against the show forever. And then somebody said to me, I was at a gathering of a bunch of friends recently. And he said to me, you're absolutely right. You need to watch it anyway. <laughs> so then, I don't know, a month or so, month or so ago, my wife and I were watching something. We were dead tired after a long day sitting down for dinner. She wanted to watch something on TV. And we were like, well, we could start the Foundation series or we could watch the Dune movie. And we're like, no, both are too heavy to get into now. And Apple TV showed us a big flashy thing for Ted Lasso. And I was like, sure, I'll watch it right now. I don't feel like watching anything and I'll, I won't get committed to it. 15 minutes into it, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, yeah, this isn't for me. Yeah, this is not the show I want to watch. And then there was a line. I'm going to say the line. It doesn't give anything away. But this Ned Flanders type, after making somebody angry with his, at first what comes across as toxic positivity, turns to somebody else and says, wow, if he thinks he hates us now, wait till we win him over. And that line kind of touched me like, he's not just some random one-dimensional Saturday Night Live character failing up. You know, he's doing this with intent. And like, there, this is a decision to be this way. Mm. And all of a sudden, the character had all this depth. And with that one line, I was hooked. And then in another episode, he was talking about his role as coach. And a reporter was interviewing him. Another one-liner that doesn't give anything away. A reporter was interviewing him about the loss of a soccer game. And he says, I don't care if my team wins or loses. And the the reporter thought that was incredulous. He's like, you don't care if they win or lose. And he's like, it's not my job to care if they win or lose. It's their job as the players to win or lose. It's my job to make them the best players, the best people that they can be today. And I was like, wow, 
And like the, the show revolves around this character who is just an upstanding human being at every point and unironically and how he influences the lives around him Mm. and influences them just through his existence to be better people and how all this chaos around him and they all become a lot. It's just such an awesome show. I, I really recommend it. When, when we watch a TV show, we have a, my wife and I have a commitment that we don't binge, binge watch it, right? Mm-hmm. I hate binge watching a show because later on I'm like, oh, I don't remember that thing. So we're watching like one episode every night or two. And, you know, uh, it gives me the space to think about that episode. And it's just such a rich, rich thing to think about. It, it's really like a, something that makes you think about your philosophy of life. Oh, maybe I have to watch this now. I know, I'm, that's I'm how me, I feel. <laughs> I'm telling you, so, like sometime when you are brain dead and don't feel like watching anything, give the first episode a shot. Yeah. Let me know what happens. This also sounds like the first contemporary male role model I might like. Oh, totally. I, my favorites for, for me are like Dick Van Dyke and Bill Nye, the science guy, and Weird mm-hmm. Al, and a lot of people from Star Trek. But there's none in the last 10 years. Not, no one I can name. Who in media has been a good, positive male role model? Other than Ted Lasso, apparently. Uh, I really think you'll like this character. I, I can't imagine who wouldn't. You would have to be the most cynical puppy kicker to hate this show. I definitely want to watch it. As someone that can be taken as a Pollyanna person about other people's lives, not my own, I have chosen a lot of things about being positive and honest and it can get lost and be seen as naive and so i really like what you've described i get extra positive by looking at the negative like i can hold contradictions and you know human foibles and failures really really well so that doesn't make me now not want to deal <laughs> with that person so, yeah, I'll be curious to see what Ted Lasso has to say about all kinds of things. Yeah, definitely recommend that show. This will date me when I talk about how I haven't watched TV for a decade. Uh, the last kind of characters that I felt this kind of passion about, and they were the anti-heroes, was the, God, I can't remember the character's name now, but it was on the TV show The Shield, which was basically a, a bunch of cops as anti-heroes about how, like, you know, they, they had come to terms with they could not just be forces of good in the world. At Sometimes they had to be the force of least evil. Mm. And the, the mechanism that they had to do that, and they were at times real anti-heroes. Then the early days, I only watched like the first two seasons of, the, uh, of Dexter, the serial murderer um, with a code. So real anti-hero kind of TV shows. And... uh you know, I just have not watched a lot of TV. And then to land on Ted Lasso is such a breath of fresh air. I can see why, especially during the the height of the pandemic, that show resonated with a lot of people. Oh, my gosh. I have so many things to say uh, to what you just said about the being least evil. And a lot. And also, Chelsea, you brought this up about how many things happen through. Vic Mackey. That's the name of the cop. Vic Ooh, Mackey. Cool, cool, Sorry. cool. No, no. <laughs> how many people contribute to whatever it is. And a lot of the vexing problems like the pharmaceutical industry, like it gets really complicated when you start to see there is no one lever. And a lot of people do feel in those positions that they are being the least evil. So many more 
topics, but we might be closer to the end of our session. I don't know if anybody else has any other zingers they want to put in before we do our reflections. Yeah, I think we're out of zingers for now. We could come <laughs> up with more. All right, let's do reflections. I happen to have one already. I can go first. Usually I take a second to think of one. From earlier in the episode, I noticed a couple examples we had about how do you motivate students to learn about algorithmic efficiency? And we had two examples. Uh, one is Chelsea has mobile apps need the faster algorithms. And I'd, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> if I knew mobile app development enough to teach it, I think I would start there too. And then Dave had the great algorithm, like a simple wooden puzzle and then a complex wooden puzzle. And the moment in the middle where you pause, they're trying to run the simple naive algorithm. That's so motivating. Help them feel the problem in the mobile app sense, like get help them see how slowly it would load before you make it refactored. In my background in education, computer science, it was definitely algorithms first. And I was always like, why though? No <laughs> one answered that at any point, really. I was never that motivated to learn algorithms and I still didn't study them, but I might in these situations. I have participated in Hour of Code and I did call my local school, but it kind of fell through. And so I really appreciate just getting reminded about becoming more involved in my community. So thanks for bringing that, Dave. Mm -hmm. For my reflection, I, I tend to have a strong recency bias right after I'm thinking about things. And so the thing that I'm remembering the most right now is our discussion of the television shows. But what I think I'll take away from that is the, the comment from your friend, Dave, around having predicted that something like this would have its time, which reminds me of our discussion earlier in the conversation about the world being ready for something, being a larger factor in when something gets developed than an individual, a fictitious individual progenitor of that thing, the way that calculus was. And I find myself wondering right now, like what in our field, in, in programming, in sort of tech in general, what is the industry, is the world, are the people that we serve, what are they ready for that I expect will see, not because some genius comes along, but because that's what our field needs. And I don't know what it is, Ooh, but I'll be there. Wow, that's real food for thought there. Mm -hmm. I tried. It's I, tried. Like a, I knew Chelsea's was going to be really good, which is why I went first. <laughs> that, that's kind of the William Gibson quote of, uh, you know, the future's here. It's just not widely distributed yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I use that I in another curriculum we'll talk about someday. I hope the answer to that is inclusion because that's a big yes. thing and it's not being applied nearly enough. Yeah. Totally. I hope that's what we get next. That's the next upgrade I'm looking for in like teamwork, OS, whatever. So I can tell you that I've been at the Computer Science Teachers Association conference the last two years that it's been virtual and inclusion is a big topic there. Even dominating discussion about like pedagogy and, and teaching algorithms. People are talking more about how do we increase, you know, representation in the classroom. So my takeaway, and I actually did not realize it until the last second when Chelsea mentioned my, what I said was my superpower at the beginning, was me sitting here talking about Ted Lasso is exactly an example of that. Because I was committed that I was not going to be interested in a show with you know, Ned Flanders is a character. And now here I am saying everybody needs to watch this. So that's a little example of uh, 
you know, I'm not wedded to that evaluation and I, I revisited it and moved on. Um, but before she said that, the thing I was considering about my takeaway is how much, you know, even after a long, tiring day at work, when I'm sitting here thinking, oh, okay, now I have to do this interview, it's going to be an hour and a half, and, you know, then I can take a break. Um, whenever I talk about this stuff, it is invigorating and revitalizing. I am just so passionate about this stuff that it gives me so much energy. It recharges me. And, uh, you know, so I'm going to try to take that and point it in some useful direction. I want to comment on that last thing you said. I was thinking earlier, what gives you energy so you can volunteer more, Dave Buck? And then your answer was kind of volunteering gives you energy. You didn't quite say that, but that's what I picked up from it. So anyone who wants to get the enough energy to volunteer, maybe powering through and just getting started and trying it once could be enough to get you started and if it energizes you in the end anyway. It might not. You could try it, though. Yeah, I never expected it to be this kind of fuel. I'll, I'll have one last parting thought on that. In that when I hold events at the library, it's often without any real agenda except, you know, the end of the semester is coming up, come to the library and I'll help you with our end of the semester projects. Or even if you just want to explore something else, I'll be there to, and I'll have students that come with random ideas and, and we just sit there and, you know, I, just my presence can give them the encouragement to do something. They'll be like, I don't know, let's, let's do that together. And I can get so involved in an interesting problem that I can forget I'm working with a high school student and not some relatively new graduate peer of mine at work. And it just, you know, begin to see a problem with beginner's eyes. That is very invigorating. Maybe I'm a, I'm a vampire stealing energy from our youth. I don't know. <laughs> They've got plenty. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>